Hello, and welcome to another episode of Coming Home Network Presents, where we have conversations about the kinds of things that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic Church and wondering if they should become a part of it. I'm Matt Swaim, Outreach Manager for the Coming Home Network, and if you're someone dealing with issues like the one we're discussing today involving music, uh, please come visit us at chnetwork.org, and especially if you're looking for support from others who are going through or who have been through the kinds of situations that we're talking about today, uh, definitely come check out our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. And today we get to talk about leading music for a congregation. And this is something that fascinates me, not because I ever served in formal music ministry uh, for worship services, but because I was a Christian musician trying to do something outside of Sunday worship. Um, but the two gents I've invited on today both have that background in leading music for congregations, and I'm excited to hear what led them to that, uh, how they approached that, and what changes they began to explore and eventually enter the Catholic Church. We have today T.L. Putnam, who is product manager for Verbum which is a Bible software platform that basically everybody should own. And then Nick De La Torre from Awakened Catholic in the Diocese of Toledo, who puts out all kinds of great videos all the time. Excited to have you both, gentlemen. Welcome. Thank Thanks you for having us. Here. We can get into the full stories of how you ended up Catholic. Uh, by you, p- People can go check out your Journey Home episodes, and I encourage them to do so. But I want to talk about kind of your faith background and what led you to want to get into music. And Nick, yours is a little bit more messed up and complex. So uh, let's go with... uh, probably true just about me as a person. You weren't as much of of a good church-going boy as TL and I were. So talk a little bit about how music played a role in bringing you back to some kind of faith and what led you to get involved in the music uh, where you were gathering. That's yeah. So for me, music um, is really it serves uh, in my story as kind of an analog for my soul uh, because um, you know music was all about me from uh, probably my freshman year in high school on. I was told that I was going to be the next Josh Groban and that I would you know I I studied voice performance and so opera in college and my goal was to just be a famous opera singer. Um, so the whole thing was about glorifying myself and well, you're on a show with me. So that shows how that worked out, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this is not the a league. So, yeah, well, and, and I appreciate the beauty and, and history and tradition of opera, but I don't even love opera that much. It was really more just that I happened to just be pretty decent at it. And, um, I had a really, really good trajectory, uh, really good reasons to think I would succeed. I wanted to see my my name in big lights at the Met, you know, and um, so it serves as an analog for my my life, my soul, because my life was about me. You know, I, I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be rich and famous. And um, when I had my conversion experience in college, I had to basically totally upheave everything about my existence up to that point including music. I had to reassess like why I was doing music, how I was approaching music, um, because it became very, very clear to me that the trajectory I was on was explicitly for my own glory. And so, um, yeah, but also in in line with that, I, I also grew up like a heavy rocker. Like I loved rock music. I still love rock music. And so... And on top of that, I was, I am Cuban American. So I was brought up in a very Cuban household. And 
listening to salsa music and merengue and like so i just had like this really weird um conglomeration of different flavors and yeah just very strange um so when I converted, I, I basically just dropped off the musical face of the earth and, and I had to start from square one. Um, so I went a little bit of time not doing it. My professors at the university that I was studying opera um, were just t- totally flabbergasted by my choice. They didn't understand it. And it's like, obviously, there's nothing evil about opera. There's nothing bad about it. But they had a hard time understanding that for me and the reasons I was doing it, like I had to stop. Um, and so that was really weird. Um, but I definitely feel now in retrospect, it was the right decision. It was a Holy spirit thing. Um, as much as like nobody around me understood it. And sometimes we have to do that in life. Like we are called to be a people set apart and that isn't just for us as a, as a universal church. That's also for us individually. Like we have to do sometimes things that go against the grain um, even if they are not like explicit, explicitly inherently evil, like if God calls us to do certain things, we have to, you know, obey the call. Mm-hmm. Um, it is for our betterment, you know? And so, um, eventually I started super casually low key leading worship for, um, the university, uh, parish in my hometown. And, um, and that just kind of set me on a trajectory that I, I started to understand how I could use the gifts that God gave me um, to to build up his kingdom and bring people closer to him in prayer. Um, yeah, and yeah, I want to pause you there because um, I want to hold you there and get TL up to kind of that point um, sure. so we can kind of converge a little bit uh, because— uh, and we may go back to some of your story too, because we skipped right over you doing stuff for like Unitarian congregations and like some Protestant <laughs> praise and worship and, and that sort of thing. True. But but TL, um, you come from a well, it, you're similar background to me. I come from a very rich Wesleyan revivalist patrimony of hymnody. Um, I wonder what your musical trajectory was like as you actually studied to lead worship. So we have a similar background with with Wesleyan uh, patrimony and, and hymnody, but it, there's also a divergence. So uh, about the time that I turned eight years old, my family moved to the the an urban area where there was a Methodist church that was charismatic leaning, and so we did still all of the hymns that you would expect. Uh, but we also had a whole bunch of uh, a Hillsong or Vineyard or whatever else thrown in of different. Uh, song Maranatha, all that fun stuff. Oh, absolutely, a whole lot of uh, of the Maranatha, uh, and so that was just kind of surrounded by that. Anytime the church doors were open, we were there, and of course, music is a big part of all of those services. And I've come to think of of music specifically in the uh, the charismatic traditions of Protestantism, but to some extent uh, others as well. Music is the sacrament that is expressed during the service because it's that point at which you meet with God. We still had communion, we still had all of these other things, but but music was the vehicle uh that that facilitated that encounter with God. And so because I was uh coming from a devout household because meeting with God was important and because we were musical already as a family, it was kind of just a foregone conclusion. I ended up going to a a 
Christian high school that was also charismatic and got involved with the vineyard movement, uh, ended up getting, they, you know, they released a new CD every month and I got on that list so that I was receiving those all the way through high school, uh, in through college. And then in college began to, uh, lead worship in a very vineyard style. We called ourselves genetic code vineyard. We weren't officially affiliated, but we might as well have been right. It's, uh, the, the knockoff vineyard. Uh, and so we, Got I got involved with the worship team there. Being the young college student with a, a lot of extra time, uh, music major, the uh, the church invited me to be first part of that worship experience, and then before too long at all, actually doing all the service planning and leading the band and all of those things from I think my uh, sophomore mid sophomore year, early junior year, uh, through the rest of my tenure there at the school, and so that was the launching point for for coming into worship. And I really took a, a really strong kind of vineyard perspective on how to put together a worship service and what the aims and the goals were. Uh, and th- that brings us, I think, up to about the same point that, that Nick has us now. Sure. So um, I don't have as much of a dog in this fight as either one of you, because I did not. So um, just very briefly, when I uh, started making the turn towards, uh, you know, not just taking the package stuff going up on, you know, in the sanctuary in my commercial Christian world and started digging deep into the Christian underground. Cause I knew that the commercial Christianity I was seeing was like shallow. And I knew that the secular narrative was not good either. So I went to the one place that's like conflicting with both of those two worldviews and critiquing both of those worldviews which is the Christian punk and metal underground. Right. And, uh, we were not operating in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. Right. Um, this is meant to operate kind of outside of that realm. So, uh, and interestingly enough, those people were doing some like lyrically challenging things. And so I found that the praise and worship music was not lyrically challenging. Um, at least of the, the variety that I was getting, it was not like, you know, really kind of trying to worm its way in my soul and saying like, Hey, I take a look at yourself, you know, and, and, and really kind of try and have an art form to it. The stuff that did that for me was the John and Charles Wesley hymns. <laughs> so here I am, like on Sunday, like yearning for like the old school hymnody, and then going out in my car and popping the CD player and playing like Tourniquet and Poor Old Lou and the Prayer Chain, you know, like all the Christian underground bands. So uh, for me, I was always kind of on the outside of that world, and I never ever thought that what I was doing, and then when I was playing in bands and even touring in bands, I never thought we should do this on Sunday mornings. I never, ever, ever thought that. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, my interesting divergence there, but, but Nick, um, before we get into like how Catholicism changed all of this, when you were putting together what you were going to play for the Unitarian congregation, or when you were putting together whatever set list might go on for like evangelical stuff, like what was in your mind? Like, how did you think like, here's how we're going to plan it out. Here's what we're going to play. Here's how we're going to play it. Like what was going through your mind in that? Well, um, I am happy to say that in those contexts, uh, in, in either of those contexts, I was not the leader. Um, and so it wasn't like it was all up to me. There were occasions where as a worship team, we would have those discussions. But the part that hasn't been discussed yet, which you were kind of alluding to, if you watch the Journey Home episode uh, where I talk about this, I was, in particular, once I was uh, on the team for the non-denominational church, I was basically an atheist. Um, and I was just, it was another opportunity to seek glory and be up on the stage and get attention and stuff. And so it really wasn't like a spiritual um, discernment of 
what music to use or my contributions to those teams were just explicitly for the limelight that I was getting, you know? Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? It does. And you know, interestingly enough, those of us who were in like the Christian punk and metal underground, we were like really cynical about the praise and worship movement. Cause we we're like, these guys are just looking for an excuse to jam out and they can't make it anywhere else. Now yeah. you actually <laughs> went to school for opera. So that doesn't apply to you in the same way. Uh, right. Because you have actual like cred, but like, we just thought like, man, these people, like, they don't really care one way or another. They're just, like, jamming. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, I, though, I like, take. you were talking about the uh, <clears throat> the depth of lyrics and stuff, and um, one of the things now, I don't want to, I don't mean to fast forward too much here, but just on that topic, like, there, there's so much now that I've grown to appreciate. Do, wait, you don't want me to do this. You don't want me to go there yet. Uh, well, <laughs> but this is a great tease, because okay. we're going to... If you're going to talk about the gather hymnal, can we save it? <laughs> we can save it. <laughs> all right. All right. I don't want to jump too far ahead because I want to know what TL was thinking when he was, yeah. you know, on his team in like vineyard, genetic code vineyard stuff, planning a service and even, you know, trying to work that into like a Methodist context. Like, what were you thinking? What was your planning like? So early on the planning, there's, there's a whole lot that goes into this. First of all is there's with hymnody you have uh, familiarity. So you can span that out over years and you can play a song you haven't played in a long time. And it's like, oh, we're back to this one again. And there's immediate like cultural familiarity that people can come back into. But when you're doing contemporary worship, you almost have to think of it like a top radio, top 40 radio station, right? I've got to have a rotation going so that there's enough familiarity so that the people can actually sing along with and not just be completely lost, turning it into nothing more than a show, right? We're trying to invite people into this. And again, if this is the sacrament, if this is the mechanism by which people's spirits encounter God, the sermon is a, a side thing. That's how our, our, soul, our intellect is fed. But if the, the music is the, the way by which we meet God, then we have to facilitate that and part of that facilitation is familiarity. That's one of the reasons that the lyrics are as simple as they are, uh, to, to be a point of accessibility so those people can uh, quickly pick up on the words, quickly discern where it's going. It's not going to be musically challenging because we have to be able to predict it and to be able to enter in with as much speed as possible while joining ourselves into that corporate prayer together in music. So for all of its flaws, it's actually designed that way to facilitate that experience, which may be just an emotional experience, but God works through the emotions as well. So yeah. a lot of times when you're looking at a, a set list in a vineyard church or in a kind of non-denominational sphere, you're trying to move people from a completely secular day into the, the holy of holies, as it were, into a place where they're connecting with God. So you start with kind of an invocation because there isn't the tabernacle in the front of the church where you can walk in and say, oh, God is here. I have to get myself to the place where I recognize that God is here. And so there's that opening song that gathers everyone together. Sometimes you've got like, come now is the time to worship. I'm showing how long I've been out of the game by men mentioning that song. <laughs> Uh, Better is one day in that house, man. Right. So <laughs> we're just going to sing it until it. We're going to sing it until we think it. You know. So you have this this invocation where you're asking God to come, or you're inviting the people and reminding them of where they are. Uh, then you enter into something that is directly referencing the character of God. Right. We're going to to exalt God's name because 
we need to remember why we're here. So those typically are the upbeat, bouncy songs. And then you kind of move it down a little bit, depending on how long your set is. Typically, you're looking at four to five songs, maybe six if you've got you know, a church that's really going for it. And those songs, of course, you repeat it several times so people can enter in. After you do that, that gathering and that exaltation of some sort, then you're going to enter into some kind of a petition, right? So it's, uh, God, here here we are broken as we were acknowledging our own weakness where there's something in the song that acknowledges that um, we need something in this encounter from God. And then lastly, we take the music way down, right? We're going to go into worship. Like Growing up, I always thought that praise was the fast music and worship was the slow music because you know, it's <laughs> praise and worship. And that's the that's the direction that the all of the CDs and tapes took. Uh, and so you enter into this at the end, something akin to contemplation, right? There's this just focusing on who God is in a tender way uh, and and sitting there as long as you can, because it's in that spot after people have recognized where they are, recognized that God is good, recognized that I need something from him. We want to park here in this softer spot as long as possible so that that heart, whatever it's holding on to for the whole of the week, can release enough to relax into the fact that God is there and God is with them and God wants to meet with them. Uh, and so it, it is very formulaic because you are trying to move people on a same journey every week without the aid of God's enduring presence in the Eucharist there to meet them as soon as they walk in the door. So this is so fascinating to me <clears throat> because you just described essentially like a liturgy. Absolutely. Uh, That's exactly what I was going to say. Even though you didn't like believe in liturgy at all. And this is, this is so fascinating on a number of levels. And and Nick, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on this too, is that what you're dealing with um, because you don't have the objective reality of Jesus Christ present in the Eucharist and he's real. And when the priest says those words, he's going to become real on the altar, no matter how dialed in you are or not, it's just going to happen. That's right. Um, the burden then becomes on you as the worship leader to like manufacture like someone's experience of the presence of God, because it's, it's, it's a busted deal. If you, if you go, and you don't come away feeling that you're like, well, church wasn't that great today. And, and it is your, you are measured both uh, in terms of your employment effectiveness and also in terms of the people's view by mm -hmm. their own subjective experience of God. And that can be an and how connected by, you yourself are with God as perceived based on like your ability as, to lead others in that experience as perceived. That's right. So if someone didn't like the song choice that day, and I heard this on more than one occasion, well, worship wasn't really good today. You know, I don't, I don't like the songs. It's like, well, okay, whose problem was that? But you can't say <laughs> that when you're, you know, the the guy up front. Yeah, Nick. Uh, I mean, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that whole deal. Yeah. So I completely resonate with everything TL said. Um, it is an acute science um, that explicitly leverages and manipulates what we know about the human psyche and how to, uh, I mean, it's not different than a lot of other things. Um, but the other, the other thing I would say though, I mean, so let's say, you know, it's a concert, like a literal concert, Celine Dion, Celine Dion's concerts, they're leveraging the same type of emotional manipulation. Like literally any event that knows what they're doing is leveraging the science of the way that we process experiences. Um, but <clears throat> I also want to be careful with, um, so, so this is something I've reflected on a lot in my life. We actually, in the Catholic context, are not 
that different, but it, but the difference is like what our intentionality is. So what are we doing in a Catholic context? Why do we have, so if we're contrasting like a non-denominational big box experience versus the sacred liturgy in a Catholic mass, they have the, the fog machines, the flashy lights, and they're trying to use all of this uh, external stimulus to ev- uh, create an environment that evokes those feelings of connecting with God. Um, the, the, in the Catholic context, we have incense, we have, um, candles. That's our fog machine, by the way, the incense is our fog machine. It's the OG fog machine. Absolutely. Instead of like actual colored lights across the front, we're getting it coming through the stained glass windows. I don't know if you know, but that's the correlation. And just, just how the pipe organ is the original synthesizer, because literally every single stop on a pipe organ is synthesizing a different part of an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so you know, there are so many overlapping points that we've just kind of stigmatized like, well, that's electronic, so it's evil. And, you know, well, literally an organ is like essentially an analog synth, you know, without electronics. It's it's pretty interesting to consider that. Um, But anyways, we too, in the Catholic context, are trying to create an environment that evokes an experience but it's less superficial. So what what are we trying to achieve with the statues and, and all of these things? We're trying to create an environment that reminds the worshiper, the, the person sitting in the pew, in this space, heaven is kissing earth. So we're reflecting externally um, what is an internal reality, or, or we're reflecting physically what is a spiritual reality, but also a physical reality, because the Eucharist is not just a spiritual reality, it's a physical reality. And so, you know, at all moments, the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle, that church is heaven kissing earth. And so we have these statues of the saints and beautiful artwork that evoke that sense that this is a heavenly place, but we don't really talk about it enough to understand that that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, Instead, it kind of, because of the lack of communication about what we're trying to do with that, it ends up getting uh, looked at as a negative thing, like, oh, they have all these, you know, why do they have all this gold stuff and whatever? Well, have you read the book of Revelation? Like we're recreating the heaven, heavenly liturgy here. Um, And so, I think that there's a lot of overlap in terms of what is um, being worked towards, but there's also an underlying ethos and like uh, what what is the the purpose behind what we're trying to do um, that is, I think, an important diverging point. Well, so I'm yeah. actually going to push on that just a little bit because I would say that you're definitely going to have those people who are all about the experience and they they know that if they tweak that, uh, this this one thing or move that one uh, arrangement piece over here, they're going to to be able to control the response. But again, this goes back to Thomas Aquinas. It's all about what the intention of the act is as to whether the act is good yeah. or bad. And so using that term um, to manipulate, it is a true sense, but we tend to think of manipulation as always being nefarious. And I think yeah. that there's something to be made, specifically when I was doing it, there really was an, a desire and intent to facilitate and to create the the environment that would make it easiest for someone to have that encounter, knowing that you can lead yeah. the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Uh, and so I, I think in the most charitable light possible that there are, all in all of the different churches, um, at least some places, and I would I would venture to guess a good portion of the churches and the people doing this kind of music are doing so because they have a genuine desire to connect with God, and they don't have any other conf, uh, context or framework by which to do it, right? You've got this 
20 to 30 minute music set to facilitate that encounter. Because once that's done, then the preacher's going to get up and the mood's going to be ruined. And you want to have them in a spiritually receptive place <laughs> so that they can, so that they can get that encounter before their intellect is fed. Right. So, yeah, and, and then of course you, you come back at the, the end. Going to say, right? right. Then you come back at the end and you bring that one more little, uh, closing song is to remind everybody, yeah, we were here and God was here with us. Uh, and so I don't think that there's necessarily a distinction just in and of that, other than in the Catholic context, we have a an objectively tangible way of receiving God's grace and connecting with his presence that, yeah. that is not as intangible or fleeting or uh, elusive as that musical experience. And so music serves a different purpose in the Catholic Church, specifically because music is not there to facilitate uh, that encounter with God. That comes at communion. Rather, music is there to set things in the mind that otherwise wouldn't be set there. So it's almost switched because the music takes an intellectual, even though it still has an emotive uh, con uh, context, it really is more of an intellectual encounter in the in the mass than than the other way around i totally agree with literally everything you just said and i, I appreciate that clarification about the word manipulation because i actually use that word not explicitly in a negative sense so i didn't mean it in that potentially negative sense so thanks for clarifying that this is what makes these conversations great by the way this is why i wanted both of you on here but you i <laughs> to to your point and to actually to both of your points um I come at this from being involved with the Christian music industry and involved in kind of the underground, but also interacting by necessity with youth groups and the CCM world, the contemporary Christian music world. And I got to tell you, there were actors in every single one of those categories making a lot of money or making no money or trying to make money in that world. There were people who you knew them like from the second they walked in that they were here to like jam hard and pick up some chicks, right? Like you just knew it. Right. And that's the way that they rolled. But you also knew some of these people are like deeply authentic people. And what's odd about it is that some of those bands that like at that time people were questioning, like, is this really like a Christian band? I don't know how like lyrically like devotional they are. Like those are the bands that are like still believers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, there's a band called Luxury who like was people were always constantly like asking, like, I don't know how Christian their like lyrics are. But those guys, like two of them are like Orthodox priests now, uh, whereas wow. a lot of bands that were you know, in kind of like the praise and worship realm. I mean, several of them have deconstructed, you know, or, or, or walked away from their faith in, in some way. But I want to get to specifically um, this question of the Catholic faith, because, you know, you both having led music or been on a part of a team leading music in those congregations, um, when someone asks you, knowing that you had a musical background, to get involved with liturgical music, like, what did you say? Because I, my immediate thing was no way, no way, Jose, when I play, I play to rock and I can't, I, now that I know what the Eucharist is, I can't be up there. Um, I just can't, I got to sit in the back and be a beggar. Um, I wonder what you, I mean, well, I know Nick, what you decided, but, um, I wonder how you kind of like handled that question. I've been, I'm still actually on a journey of discovering my place in music in the, in the context of Catholic liturgy and, and being a Catholic, uh, my wife and I still, we make, we write and, and produce a ton of music. Um, and we actually, we've done a lot of music in the last two years that we haven't released that we just need to get around to doing it. It's just, it's hard, you know, when you got kids and life anyways. Um, 
but in the context of liturgy and worship, I actually, so I eventually became a, a music director at a parish and I learned a lot. I had a really holy priest uh, as my boss at that parish and just taught me so much about prayer and um, it was it was an amazing part of my journey. One of the things that I really came away with was an appreciation for um, this, the the sanctity, the the holiness of the mass, uh, in a way that I never had it growing up as a kid, um, and you know I kind of really really hate doing music for mass, like exactly what you're describing, Matt. Um, and especially now, as my wife and I, we've been on a journey where we're kind of really falling in love with. Um, more of the traditional aspects of our faith. So we've been attending the traditional Latin mass. Um, and, you know, I'll still go to a Novus Ordo mass, uh, the mass that most people are used to, and and still pray and still, you know, encounter Jesus in the Eucharist and the sacred scriptures. And it's still a beautiful thing. But we just are falling so in love with the reverence for the sheer magnitude of what the mass is and how the Latin mass kind of uniquely trans, uh, transmits that reality. Um, and so now I just can't fathom, like I'll still do it occasionally. Um, if I'm asked to, whether it's for a wedding or something, but like, I just really don't like doing it because like what you described, like, I just want to be on my knees. I want to be praying. I like, TL was teasing earlier. He's really into Gregorian chant and stuff. Like I, I, that's what I want TL singing Gregorian chant at whatever liturgy I'm going to, you know? (laughs) Um, so I, I just, that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, still very actively a musician and I'm actually, uh, when I'm not wearing my awakened Catholic president hat, I'm actually a music producer and a mixing engineer. So, you know, I'm, uh, producing music, mixing music for people all over the country. Um, but that's not like they, it's not they the same thing. Christian artists. Right. It's not the same it's, thing. It's not the same thing. Yeah. You can make uh, art to the glory of God. This is actually a big, huge part of my journey um, was trying to figure out like, what does it mean to make things to the glory of God? And, you know, that leads you to the question of truth and beauty and goodness. And the only place that's got the decent answers to any of those questions is the Catholic church. But um, TL, did you have a similar dilemma or were you fine? Like, did people even, did you like keep it a secret that you had led music before or? No, not, not hugely. My journey was a little different because I started toward liturgy before I came into the Catholic church. So uh, my, the early, the churches that I started out in, I was the contemporary worship leader, right? Cause you got to have services for every flavor. Uh, and then as my career progressed and you know, you have to, you've got an ever growing family, you've got to get the ever bigger salary. Uh, and so I had to take on more responsibility. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I know hymns. I can put together a, a hymn service and lead that singing. And I found myself walking through the halls in the middle of the week and the songs that were bugging me and the songs that I were, you know, whistling down the hallway were the hymns. And I thought, well, that's really odd because that's, that's the childhood stuff. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm into this new stuff now and the songs that you were mentioning earlier, the songs that were challenging and the songs that I couldn't get out of my head were those songs of rich hymnody. And so one of the, one of the things about music today is that the people who are writing the songs for our worship, and this even goes into some of the hymnals that we have in our, in our Catholic pews, the songs that we're singing today are written by musicians and the songs that 
were in the older hymnals were written by theologians. And there is a vast chasm between the content and those. Not to say that there's anything wrong with the prayers written by musicians, but because, you know, King David was a musician. But there is something about having a theologian like St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote so many of our Eucharistic hymns, and the content that those bring into us and the prayers that those songs put into our mouths as opposed to someone from a hymnal that has already been mentioned that I shall not name. There's a, there's a big difference in the kinds of things that we're singing as a community. What, even when I, before I was Catholic, one of my questions was, are we really worshiping? Right, we've got the song, um, "I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you." Right, that's an old Maranatha song. The question is, is the statement and the declaration of the word worship actually in itself worship? How am I worshiping? And so the question is, what are we doing with the songs that we're singing? What are we accomplishing with those things if it's just? sung words. So those words have to burrow into us and move us to action. Otherwise, it's just pretty music and in motion. Uh, And so I already was moving in that direction towards being really intentional about where songs were placed within a service and what it was accomplishing at that place so that it upheld the action that was already going on rather than just kind of being a standalone unto itself. And so when I came in to the Catholic Church, a couple of things happened. First is I didn't, I I joined a choir for a while, but that got harder as I got more kids. But I wanted to step back because I recognized that this is so different. Going back to that whole question of top 40, I don't have the repertoire to be able to lead this people into the experience that they need. And then the longer that I've been around and in Catholicism, I've looked at said, I have too much baggage personally from the, from the quote-unquote traumas of subjective experience being laid upon me that I don't want to be involved in that place. I want to sit back and I want to uh, support the musicians that are there and help maybe form some of the intellectual ideas around music, but I just want to be in a place where I can participate in the liturgy from my place and support the singing by singing strongly, letting everybody else around say, Oh, I need to match that energy. Right. But not, not be the guy behind the organ or, uh, selecting the hymns. And it's really easy where I am to not do that because the person who's there is excellent. It's harder in some of the other places where I've been where it's like, Oh, Oh, that's, mm, you know, tuning is good. Oh, let's, let's rethink this. <laughs> uh, I, you, you get that. Yeah. I could do better syndrome. And then, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and you're, then you're, then your pride takes over, but you know, you just mentioned something and, and, uh, I, I, I don't know if you even, you know, notice this in your, your non-denominational context, uh, uh, Nick, but you know, part of the, the angst of like, are we really leading people into worship? Are we really worshiping here like that was always kind of like a like a self-reflective question all the guys that i went to bible college with who are christian ministries majors and they all played acoustic guitar and they all knew the same five chords that you needed to play every single song in the whole praise and worship <laughs> repertoire um it's like but what, are we really worshiping like there's even that song that came out um it might have been matt redman uh that was uh heart, the of, heart worship. of worship so yep. it was like this self 
the self-reflective song that came out because all these people were worried about being praise and worship leaders and the attention all being on them. So Matt Redman writes this self-reflective thing. It's like when the music fades and, and all is swept away. I want to come back to the heart of worship, which is not about me up here on a stage playing guitar. It's all about you. And what happens? Every single praise and worship leader adopts that as the, their, like, you know, jam out song, right? So, like, it's it's this. But Even I Matt Marr did it. I know. Like, everybody's done it at this point. But what's interesting about that. that- What's interesting about that story that everyone sings it and doesn't know it is that was the song after I think a six month, maybe a year absence of music at their church because the pastor says, we're not doing this right. And so they we're not doing it anymore. cut all their music mm. and that was the song that they reintroduced music back to their congregation. Well, what do wow. you know? So, so with that in the background, I mean, I think that really tells the story of what the dilemma is for so many people who are in that, like, how do we really, are we really worshiping? And the answer is, well, no, you're praising God, right? But the essence of worship is sacrifice. Like, if you don't have sacrifice, you're not worshiping. And that's the thing that was missing. Um, We were offering praise. And to this day, I think that this is one of the issues why Protestants and Catholics have so much, like, language barrier, because they don't understand our prayers to the saints. They don't understand our intercessions through Our Lady. They don't understand any of that because to them, praise and worship is a musical genre, uh, right? To them, like, there's no distinction between praise and worship, which are have uh, significant distinctions in the Catholic context. And the most important distinction being that worship involves sacrifice. Worship in every world religion going back as far as you can find and as far around the world as you can go, it involves sacrifice at the center of it. And that was something that I don't think I realized was the missing piece until I started to realize the reality uh, of the Eucharist. So when we first became Catholic, uh, my wife also grew up in a charismatic background, and her thought was, and she said out loud, okay, we can do this, I'm ready to do this, but I'm still going to need to go and visit a praise and worship service like once a month, uh, maybe once every other month. And I thought, yeah, I can see that. I don't need that, but I can see that for you. Three weeks after we came into the church, we ended up at one of the larger, uh, well-known churches that if I were to say the name, people in that context would say, oh yeah, we sing their songs all the time. We were down visiting family. We went to that that church and we got about three bars into the song. And my wife, who was expecting to just really enter into this experience, just kind of looked around and thought, is this all there is? And, you know, she'd received the Eucharist for, for literally three weeks, and she's looking around going, they're asking God to be here, but if I walk into the church and I see the red candle, I don't have to work up anything. I don't have to beg. I don't have to ask. Ooh. I could be in the worst uh, mood that I could be in, and I could walk in, and Christ is there regardless of how I feel. And I could, so I much, could not notice him, and he would right. still be there. Yeah. And so much of this service that she was experiencing is is us pleading that God will show up and there's just so much more. And she has not had any desire to go back since that day. Wow. That's good stuff. Nick, you were going to say something. Yes, I was. You don't even remember what it is. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do, I think with uh, lyrics. So like TL was kind of explaining a lot of what goes into the development of these songs uh, earlier on in this recording. Um, and I was thinking also about like, so he, he was talking about the ways in which they are intentionally developed to be 
easy to dive into, um, easily retainable. And um, the other thing I was thinking about, you know, connecting that to some of what you were explaining, Matt, about your background in the music industry and the people you would meet, like, there's also a very real component of this, which is there, there is a lot of money to be made mm-hmm. in the Christian niche of music. And a lot of the crappiness that is out there has to do with how quickly there is a huge benefit to just churn this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't feel compelled to put more into it because they don't need to, because this is what people want. They want the very you know, superficial, just in terms of like, it doesn't have a lot of depth to it. Um, they, they want anybody can like, pick up a guitar and learn it. I mean, yeah. I think that's a big part of it too. Um, yeah. And then there are some artists that stand out in my own mind as, as being just poets with their lyrical content. So Phil Wickham is a guy that to me, especially some of his older stuff, like his first two or three albums, are just so extraordinarily beautiful. Some of the things he did with the Psalms and like, they just evoke, it, not all of them are explicitly like stuff that I would want to hear in a mass mm-hmm. at all. But just in terms of day to day listening to music, like some of the music he has composed is just so poetic and beautiful and evokes emotion and 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 is so, is, is full of depth um, and is musically very full of depth. And, that's a stark contrast to a lot of the other stuff that's out there. And um, to me, like getting back to what uh, TL was saying about the theologians who would compose a lot of our lyrical content, like just, you know, you were talking earlier, Matt, about the gather hymnal. Like there's stuff out there. No, you were talking about the gather hymnal. I stopped you. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I never said the word gather. (laughs) Um, no, but just there, there's stuff out there that like makes us feel good about ourselves. And there's stuff out there that is authentically an expression of prayer, you know? And then, so like trying to shed like a positive light on some of the contemporary worship stuff, like there are some songs, for example, from Hillsong United that kind of feel like, all right, you know, but then there's some songs from Hillsong United that are just extraordinarily powerful that can really help bring words to someone's soul that help them express prayer. It doesn't mean I want it in liturgy, but what it can mean is like, let's say you have some kind of a a prayer service that is outside of the context of liturgy that, that you really want to like enter in with people. Like there are some songs, like there's one, for example, that I used uh, when I was leading worship for a, um, a, a men's retreat and there's this one song called With Everything by Hillsong that when you go into that song and you have a band and like you just have that that bigness, that song makes you proclaim to God literally just woe. But like the way that the song sets it up, like you are just giving God everything that you are. And there are songs that can that are masterfully put together that help people pray in that way where they can turn themselves over through the song. But that doesn't mean I want them in liturgy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the that's an important thing to, to point out too. I mean, like for instance, uh, my favorite Catholic music in terms of like the people who are out there grinding and putting stuff out is like the Catholic hip hop artists, uh, which uh, <laughs> they the guys and if John and Carlos and like any of the Foundation family are listening, two of them have been on the journey home, um, and they put out incredible, amazing stuff. But they are the first ones to tell you we don't want this in the liturgy, <laughs> right? Um, this is. Uh, 
this is an expression of who we are because what we what we receive in the liturgy flows out into everything else that we're doing out uh, out wherever we go. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said for for that whole question. But I uh, wish we had a whole lot more time, but we don't. So I want to give like a chance for you to um, to mention where people can find the stuff that you do. So they can uh, plug in and, fi- and find out, uh, you know, your projects. I'm going to start with UTL. If the listeners want to, uh, and viewers want to get connected with you, and, I mean, they really just should get Verbum if they don't have it already. They just plain old should. But how can they do that? Go to Verbum.com. So just a quick elevator speech. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching. It puts the magisterium at your fingertips by linking the catechism to Scripture, to the fathers and doctors of the church, to magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, and so much more. Uh, you can get into it for free. Uh, there, we always have free books of the month. You can always build your library that way, but we also have some curated libraries that help you get into Bible study at various levels. Uh, you can find out more at verbum.com. It's really addictive. Um, I gotta say <laughs> when you get into it. Um, and Nick, you do so much stuff with Awaken Catholic. Give our people a little kind of sense of what that is and how they could find it. Absolutely. So um, the biggest thing that we're trying to get in front of people right now is our app. So we have, um, I think, subjectively, one of the coolest Catholic apps out there. Um, So you can learn more about it by just going to get.theawakenapp.io. But it has the only that I know of trilingual prayer library so you can toggle between english spanish and latin for every uh, nearly every prayer in the prayer library Um, and our prayer library might be one of the more elegant options as far as catholic apps go with prayer libraries Um, we also have a music library with um, original music from uh, different catholic artists including the music that my wife and i make Um, we have video and audio podcasts that are produced uh, here at awaken catholic studios and then it's also just a great community app um, if you want to interact with people and not be on Facebook and Instagram, we also do live streams. I host a, a daily scripture reflection through the app. Um, and then there are several other ones that take place, uh, different seasonal liturgical season devotions. Uh, like right now we, we have ours called awaken your Lent and there's a couple of priests that are doing stuff there and there's all kinds of fun. Get.theawakenapp.io. So if nothing else, uh, hopefully people walk away with, uh, some good ideas for how to plug in and get uh get cranking on awaken and uh with verbum uh, great great stuff from both of you guys and i encourage people uh we just kind of zeroed in on little pieces of your journey um definitely go and check out these guys journey home episodes at chnetwork.org and uh don't forget that the coming home network um is brought to you by you. So uh, if you appreciate what's going on and want to support it, you can go to uh, the donate button while you're there, uh, chnetwork.org slash donate. And if you're someone who's looking for an actual fellowship with people who are uh, along this same trajectory, uh, maybe you want to talk about this at length with some people who have been in these situations, then definitely check out our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Guys, the hour has gone too fast. The time has gone. It wasn't a full hour. Uh, but uh, Nick, TL, thanks so much for joining. Uh, really appreciate having you on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. All right. Until next time, thanks for joining us on CH Network Presents.